You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Hello, I had a conversation with Julian Bridgeton over at Macro Intelligence 2 Partners. We spoke about a, a lot of different things, and what I did was I cut up the conversation to help share it with you. Julian was gracious enough to um, allow me to share the call that we had, and we just chat about a bunch of things. I think you'll find it quite interesting. So the recording cuts straight into us discussing, or beginning to discuss, the bond market. I hope you enjoy it. And um, I'm keen to get your thoughts on, on um, you know, where we're at and, and a number of things. I've got a whole a whole lot of different theses as to you know what is taking place, and um, I'll put my bias out there, and um, I'm always happy to have rocks thrown in it. I'm a okay. bear on the um, sovereign debt markets. Right. Um, my reasoning behind that is both mathematical in terms of more importantly, probably is around, along the lines of my belief that what has led us to this pinnacle, if you will, in the markets, in the bond markets, was um, a consequence of the a number of things, but in particular the 08 crisis, which coming out of it will put us in a position of global central bank coordination, the likes of which we've never experienced ever in any history I've ever looked at. Um, you had the central banks of Europe, Bank of England, Japan, the yep. US, all coordinating you know, monetary policy. Japan was kind of always on their own, doing their own thing. But what they were doing happened to be the same thing that the other central mm-hmm. banks wanted mm-hmm. to do anyway. So you had this coordination, which, again, if you go back into history, um, that's a massive anomaly. And I believe we've, we've resolutely come out of that. Part yep. of that has been a political process of strong men coming into power, you know, whether it's Trump in the US, where you guys are. Abe is a strong man. Mm-hmm. She... And being as a strong man, um, okay, the, the bond market there are maybe not yeah, yeah, as yep. consequential, but certainly across Brexit was, well, there is no strong man in Britain. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. There's, no there's strong no anything. Man. Yep. Yep. No, but, but the point, I guess, is that you've got this fragmentation and that coordination that existed that allowed for that bond. But look, I think it was July, was it July 2016 when the Swiss mm-hmm. franc year went to went negative um, yep. and my belief is that was the top and there'll be a process coming out of it. But so that's, that's kind of one of the biases I've got around yeah. that. I, look, I, I mean, if you want to tackle it, I mean, I, I completely agree on the bond market. We, um, we advocated in the spring of 2016 to start shorting the bond market or at least teeing type people up to short it. We actually shorted it in July the 20th. Um, we rode it until May of this year till yields got to 251 and then we cut that trade and we have, we said to people, we thought we could get yields back to about 210. We didn't quite get there within a few basis points. Um, I totally agree on the structural low on yields. I think it was created to your point by a combination of factors, but I think, 
one of them is unforgivable. And I think one of them is still going to manifest itself with some serious negative consequences. And that is you had particularly European central banks, um, but it also occurred at the same time the BOJ panicked. But European central banks treat a fall in oil prices as deflationary. And it is under no circumstances ever deflationary in continental Europe. Continental Europe has no oil. They have no oil industry, unlike the US. They didn't have to absorb a, a blow up in the shale industry. So a drop in oil price is singularly stimulative. End of story. So, but they treated it as uh, deflationary and they chucked the kitchen sink at the problem. And it was a mirror image of the cock up that they made in 08, where they raised rates because oil was at 150 bucks a barrel. And Draghi said, if we are not decisive, inflation may explode. Um, Mario Draghi, two weeks before the low in oil prices, said, we will not surrender to low inflation. So you had them instigate um, NERP, which was fundamentally destructive. You had the BOJ then do the same thing. And that unleashed a tsunami of outflow out of the Japanese uh, investor base into uh, global bonds. And generally speaking, uh, whenever the Japanese get in, you should be thinking about getting out. Mm -hmm. And because uh, just by the very nature that they, you know, they are the world's biggest saver, but they're quite conservative. So they tend to be, they tend to push things to, to ridiculous levels and then you, you get out. But you had this huge, vast outflow. I think net, net, they doubled their overseas bond holdings in nine months, which is fucking remarkable. And they create, that was the cherry on the cake of the world's largest bond bubble and the bond feeding frenzy which then corrected as the data started to improve from the reflationary trade. Um, where do we stand right now? Well, in the US, we're at sort of a bit of a crossroads. It's sort of ho-he-ho-hum. Um, but essentially, um, we have yet to see the correction. You've seen the correction in European and US bonds. Um, you can't see a correction in Japan. Um, I am of the opinion that you're going to get a correction in Europe and it is going to be a vicious fucking correction because our research is suggesting a far more rapid uptick in inflation than the market is got its head around. Um, growth is rampant in certain parts of continental Europe. Just to put it into perspective, Sweden just printed a 4% year-on-year -year GDP growth number, expected was 2.7. That is over a five sigma event. So it should happen every 880,000 years. Um, <laughs> and um, that is indicative of what Germany is going, to, is going to be doing. I mean, we've got our own models are suggesting you could easily pick 5% nominal GDP growth in Europe in the first quarter of next year. Pan Europe, pan. We're, we're which actually brings me to... 50 basis point bond yields. Yeah. So you've got the bond market, which, is, which we've just discussed. But bonds essentially just long-dated currency, I mean, to a certain extent, with a collateral component that, that can, can move the pricing accordingly. In that respect, I'm looking at um, 
the euro, which is at what one eighteen, something like that, at the moment. Yeah, just off the um, highs. Just off the highs, and you know, back to the the dollar, because essentially you've got dollar, euro, yen. Those are really the only ones that matter. Yeah. Um, in that setup, given what we've got in the world, given the fact that the the Fed have hiked rates, that there's a bit of still an imbalance with respect to U.S. debt as opposed to mm-hmm. European and certainly Japanese debt. I sit and I look at this and I think, why on earth would somebody want to buy European debt? And if you wouldn't buy a European debt, like as if you had to buy sovereign debt and right. you've got those three ugly girls on the on the podium, which yep. one are you going to take home at night? And I find it difficult to make the judgment call that I want to own European debt. No, you don't. Um, I don't think you want to. I wouldn't. I am singularly bearish on European fixed income. I think that if you look at the duration exposure of real money, it's, pro- it's just off its absolute ass highs ever, ever. And the reason for that is because there are rules in Europe that force um, real money to bas- balance assets and liabilities. So it led in the ridiculous summer of last year it read it led to people being forced by the actuaries to buy negative yielding bonds to match their duration exposures which you know um as one real money guy said to me he had this sh- screaming match with his, with his actuaries about the fucking stupidity of locking in a loss um but anyway um, and, and if that's the case julian then why would you want to own short data debt which is currency well, no. So here's here's the thing. You definitely don't want to own long dated European debt. We're we've been trading. I mean, the euro is a proxy for that rate spread, but it's run a little far. You got to squeeze yeah. the rate spread. Probably tells you at the moment like one fourteen and a half, which is one of the reasons why we took profit on our long euro trade at above one eighteen. Um, I don't disagree with the um, long euro idea. Um, one note of caution depends how you adjust the bond pricing do you adjust it gradually or does it occur rapidly if it occurs rapidly we have a perfect model for how that can play out and that was the spring of 2015 bunjils went from zero to one percent in three months the dax dropped 25 percent on the back of that re-rating of bunjils and you had a rise in the euro against the dollar, but the dollar rose against absolutely everything else because it was a risk-off dollar yeah. rally. So, so to put it in perspective for someone in your part of the world, Euro Kiwi jumped 40 fucking percent in three months. 40%. Yeah. Okay, because the dollar is not always the euro or the DXY. The DXY is about 75% euro anyway, effectively. Well, yeah, yeah, because it's all the other Swedish um, as well, and those are locked in. So, you know, it's it's mostly it's not a very good proxy. So I I get a little cautious having spent 30 years trading FX when when. I hear a lot of people who are not FX specialists going, well, look at the euro, look how weak the dollar is. And it's not necessarily the same thing. No. But because um, especially when it's being driven by repricing of European growth expectations, and we haven't even seen the bond move yet. But, but so my, I, 
as I stand here right now, Chris, I believe we've seen a cyclical low in bonds. Maybe Raoul's ultimately right and we get such a big blow up that yields spike to, you know, three and a half percent and then the whole world dies and just rolls over again, maybe. Um, but it's too far out as far as I'm concerned. The immediate risk, I think, is a further rise in bond yields, probably led by Europe. Although there's certainly nothing priced into the short end of the US curve anymore. Everyone's priced out in the inflation risk. I see a burst of reaccelerative inflation, not very bad in the US. It'll get core back above two and a quarter. It'll be enough to justify the Fed hiking. Um, I could see a much more rapid move in Europe if this data comes out as I expect it to do over the next six months. Um, but the big risk is that you get a rapid move and a rapid move will be highly destructive because a bond correction um, will castigate stocks. You've got to understand that the whole of modern portfolio theory is based upon the principle of negative correlation between bonds and stock prices, mm. right? So you've got your bond, your stocks go down, but your long bonds, so you're fine. If the instigator of the equity correction is a bond correction, then you end up with positive correlation and they both go down together. That means you have no hedge. Well, your hedge is probably cash in that environment. And cash so, all. They're the only hedges yeah. you can have. So what it means is that people have to start liquidating wholesale portfolios. So if you look at things like um, risk parity or any slightly leveraged balanced portfolio and you look at their cycle highs, um, if you look up, if you've got Bloomberg, if you look up like salient macros, um, risk parity index, the thing peaked the day that Bund yields put the lows in and sold off 20% until the day that the BOJ came in with, with NERP. It was the only yeah. thing that stopped broad deleveraging going on in the financial markets. Because as I look at the world now, we everything is so wound up in terms of lack of vol that it yeah. would literally, if you're driving around the motor, you know, if you're driving around the road and you get hit by a bumblebee, it should just hurt. This one I fear could go straight through your eyeball and back out through the back of your head. Um, because I just think that if you look at actual, actual trading ranges of buns, we're at levels now where these things just do not stay around. If you look at, um, I run this thing called an ammo index where I look at the ability of the market to absorb some sort of exogenous shock before it has to liquidate positions. We're exactly where we were in 2015 and we're pretty close to the lows of 2000, um, which was an equity bubble, unlike 2007, which wasn't an equity bubble. Um, and you look at, if you especially vol adjust that, it's just frightening. If you look at positioning, um, cash positioning, you know, everything just tells you this is a market priced at extremes. And the question is, is what the exogenous shock is, right? If it is a repricing in the bond market, God help us, because it will be a vicious, vicious deleveraging. And it's not clear. What's really not clear is, and I just wrote about this for Macro Insiders, um, if the if the sell-off is caused by strength, economic strength and economic and, and higher inflation, it's not clear that the central banks can immediately come in and do more. At some point they will. But if they've just printed higher inflation, how do they say they're going to do QE5? 
or QE4. There's no justification. There's no justification. So then you get a much, much uglier sell-off. And to me, this biggest risk is this positive correlation between bonds and equities, because then you'll just get broad VAR shocks across all portfolios and anything that's leveraged. And so we've been advising people who subscribe to Macro Insiders to get out of stuff that we think is vulnerable. You know, emerging markets is probably the best performing risk asset that risk parity funds have bought into over the last six months, six to nine months. I was just, I was just going to say junk bonds in emerging markets to me look like a flying switch of a windshield. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you get any sort of vol shock of any, or even any sort of, you know, gradual pickup because risk parity, they don't dump immediately. They use, you know, logged um, backward looking sort of, you know, vol models. So they take a while to kick off. But once they start selling, those guys just sell, 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 sell. Well, the sell. other thing is that they're all they're all built on along the same models. And so the price points that they hit are, you, you have, it's a little bit like when you've got an IPO and you've got, um, you know, the investment bankers list maybe 10% of the stock. Right. I know that you're going to have another 90% of the stock coming on in, say, six months' time. Right. <laughs> and so you have this wave of, of stock at the market, it's a similar setup where you've got all these pricing levels that the various um, fund managers are all using. They're all using some derivative of the same same quantitative yeah. analysis. Um, I mean, years ago, I remember working at JPM, and you know, you made the comment around a five sigma move, and I was doing some work with the what was called the six sigma team, and I used to laugh because. I look at it now and it's like six right. sigma and you're getting six sigma at least once a year. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, so you get these, um, these buildups and as you say, you can get this cascading event. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's frequent that you end up with, um, you know, we've got this sort of quiet period, but I mean, I've got, I've got cyclical models that suggest the downturn is, is coming, you know, maybe it's too, early but it's coming in sort of october would be when i would hit the point of maximum risk so what are your thoughts julian on japan um i wrote a piece on japan recently and i'm afraid to say it's going fucking nowhere in terms of absolutely going nowhere there is no inflation um i'll show you a chart which i think is just catastrophic um do you see that okay so what i'm looking at japanese labor force cpi index x yeah. food so the bottom line is japan's in full blown demographic driven deflation the fact that the boj has managed to hold inflation raise it slightly is fucking remarkable well, they've pretty much brought out the bazooka and the nuclear weapons to do it. But it's not working. And they're pissing okay. against the wind. And they cannot do it. And none of our models show any um, underlying um, uptick um, at all in, the, um, in inflation. We show a bunch of very manipulated markets. So if you look at... Um, if you look at the equity market, what they've managed to do is create the largest, 
the equally largest divergence between the topics and the topics banking index. And I think it's, from my perspective, it's always essential to get your banks to actually rise. Otherwise, there is no reflation. Um, it's equivalent as, as the high we got in 2000 and the high we got in 2007. Okay. So, you know, they've, they cannot devalue the yen too much because if they devalue the yen, uh, they import such a high percentage of their protein and energy that um, consumer confidence actually falls and small businesses actually contract. Um, which is the deflationary, big, which is what they're trying to fight. Right, which is deflationary, which is what they're trying to So they're stuck on the – and then their exporters actually dependent on – if you actually look at Japan's export performance, it looks in, in yen terms relatively impressive, but if you dollarize it, they've actually underperformed most of their peers um, in terms of their export penetration in somewhere like the US. So they've slipped relative to China or Germany or Korea. Um, they actually need – if you look at industrial production, um, it's actually dependent on, a, on an ever-increasingly accelerative rate of yen decline. So in other words, it isn't just the level of the yen that's important, it's the rate of the yen decline. The rate of change. Yeah. Right, which, of course, means that it's unsustainable because, once again, they can't go, once they go much above 120, the whole fucking thing implodes again. So it, they are in a really, really, really difficult situation. And, and Japan, Europe has been an utter disaster for a nation of savers. And yet, yeah, that's, that's why I gave them an, an F, the BOJ, not because for effort, they get an A plus for effort, but in actual fact, in terms of delivering a policy which actually works for an aging population with the world's highest, one of the world's highest savings ratios, to just slavishly follow what's been followed in the United States, which is a debtor or what's been proposed by a bunch of US economists, is in actual fact a total fucking anathema in Japan. So they're implementing completely the wrong policies. I'm not saying there's anything ultimately they could do, but I'm more inclined to give people $100,000 each for having another baby than I would be at suppressing <laughs> bond yields at this level. So you crush the returns of the bank yeah. and the savers. And, you, and Japan's in this unique situation in that most of that bond market is actually domestically owned. So they Correct. kind of don't have the same sort of um, no. pressures that exist in Europe for certain. No. So and, at and this and, point, look, I'm actually quite fearful if we get another risk-off event. I mean, what will happen is that if you look at 2015, dollar-yen was caught between two completing forces because in one side, global bond yields rose. Yeah. Um, which would suggest dollar yen would rise, but at the same time it was risk off. So <laughs> dollar yen just sort of sat yeah. there. I did have at one point a very large drop as 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 we hit the sort of the but, zenith but then, of the risk off. That, that 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 environment was still one where you had a, um, a decent amount of central bank coordination, which today I would suggest doesn't exist. Correct. And back then it was quite easy after bond yields, after bonds spiked to 1% for the ECB to say, look, this is ridiculous. Right? There is no inflation. There's no nothing. But if it's actually caused by a spiking core inflation in Europe, which I think is possibly one of the triggers, um, then it's going to be much fucking harder for them to do that. The, the biggest problem, Chris, this is, highlights the biggest problem. The biggest problem is central banks are finally getting what they wanted. They're getting mm -hmm. growth. They're getting some inflation. Maybe not quite as much as inflation as they like, but it will come. Okay? 
the problem that they've got is in the process of trying to generate that, they have created such a chasm between asset prices and bond yields. And bond yields ultimately the denominator of all asset prices, be it cash flow, you know, FX or whatever. Yeah, they're the basis of collateral under the whole system. Correct, correct. That it's questionable whether we can actually get the adjustment whether we can maintain asset prices, and I think the answer is we can't, and get that adjustment in bond yields. What? Well, yeah. Because if equities were to drop now, okay, we know what would happen. The ECB would say, well, we're not going to taper yet. We don't need to. We're going to keep going. The Fed would say, well, we're not hiking in December and we're not going to shrink the balance sheet. And then everything would just wobble and come back. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the biggest risk is is in an equity decline. I mean, equity declines are they're historically bad things, but the the, right. the the most the most disastrous of all is a is a bond decline. And Correct. certainly at the moment, bond markets are far. There's much more capital in the bond markets than there are in the equity markets. Well, there's certainly a lot more than get lost. I don't think so, people yeah. realise how much money can get they can lose in the bond market because let's be honest, if if the, if the bond market corrects and for some miraculous reason the equity market were to survive, central bankers, and especially if it's caused by growth and inflation, would be patting themselves on the back. Yeah. But that's not going to happen. But that's so, not going to happen. Okay. In that world then, let's, let's go on the assumption of um, both a bond decline, equity decline. We'll just kind of focus on Europe for the minute. What are your thoughts? Okay, so cash is obviously one of the things that you need to be um, focused on. What are your yep. thoughts with respect to commodities? Because um, if you've got a I am, of- yeah, I mean, I am. I think you could, you get a bit of a, you could potentially get a bit of a risk off correction. You know, in some of these things on a dollar move. Um, but I'm not a huge bear on commodities. I think actually, certainly the soft, not so much oil, um, which tends to dominate a lot of the indexes, um, but soft commodities tend to lag the cycle. They're one of the slowest moving cycles. And what you've got at the moment is a pickup. It looks to me that you've got steady. Pr- That's one of the reasons why I see headline inflation higher. I've got 4% food price rises going through in the US by the beginning of yeah. next year. Yeah. And we're seeing that across um, your homeland, right, as yeah. well. Um, yeah. Which... I mean, a lot of that was obviously the deval of sterling. Um, but the US, it's, it's, it's just solid push through. And that's going to come through everywhere globally. So the sort of headline rates that have been dropped and then bounced by oil are now going to be pushed higher again by food. And the core is coming through in core was really only pushed down because of oil and because it does affect um, it does affect core in the end, even though it's technically stripped out, but it's also because of Chinese uh, deflation and uh, produ- negative producer price indexes. And those have all bounced now. Many of my friends, probably many of your friends, maybe even yourself are looking at the U S markets going, this thing's crazy. P valuations, you know, we, we do for a correction, both on a historical time frame, valuations are out of whack. Um, I've been reluctant to, certainly reluctant to short it. I'm not long it, but I don't want to short it 
And I've got a, you know, I've got this nagging, this nagging suspicion in the back of my head that there's, you know, there's always more involved than just one singular. You can't look at one piece of the mm-hmm. pizza and, and determine what's going on without looking at the whole. And so again, if I look at the whole and, and I look at what's taking place in Europe, Japan, which we've just mentioned, and I'm a global asset manager and I, I can move capital into equities, bonds, any country. In a risk-off environment, I would think that I must I'd be I'd be more comfortable I'd be more comfortable in owning US debt short term. Um, so I think that that's got a potential for being quite a good um, play. Honest, honest, his thing, you own it. If the trigger is though high European bond yields, you have to own it on a relative basis, not on an outright basis, because yeah. all bonds go down. Right. All bonds, because even in 2015, even though it had nothing to do with the US, US Treasury yields spiked because they were dragged higher by bond yields. Yeah. And remember, yeah. there's been 1.4 trillion euros worth of money that's basically flown into either the US equity bond market or the UK equity market from European investors in the last three years. So the question is, where does that capital go in a panic? Goes home, I think. Mm. Into cash. Into cash initially, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I mean, I've been looking at coming back to the commodity market. A lot of these are cyclical lows. Some, in particular, fundamentally, are incredibly. I mean, uranium is one that that's spiked my interest. Just you just look at the numbers and you go, okay, this can last, but it can't last forever. Right. You know, um, and so that's kind of interesting um, because it's part of that energy complex. Oil, I actually just noticed the other day, the, well, you know, the, well, I'm trying to think of the gent's name, who's considered the god of oil, oil god or something. He's just closed down his fund. He was the guy at Goldman who got a $100 million bonus. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone was pissed off because, you know, <laughs> this was at the height of the crisis and that had a yes, yes. <laughs> But he made them a lot of money. So that was part of the contract. But... You know, you go back in history and you see every time you've had major shutdowns, it's not necessarily the low, but it's like you're getting closer yeah, to yeah. a liquidation in that in that sector. And oil is interesting in that space. Um, I still think it's a little bit early. Did you see and the course, Did you see the interview on um, Real Vision? On that the guy who was just talking about it today. No, I haven't. It was actually quite good. Um, or the other day, who was it? It was Legends of Finance, Russell Clark. It's actually very interesting. He makes some really good points. But it's just two years out that he's basically bullish. Yeah. 18 months to two years out. So I look, I. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just watching the time. Here, um, if, you, if you look at the world, right here, right now, I have been advising people to run things pretty close to their chest. So if you're running risk, um, have close stop losses, be watching things, you know, don't allow yourself to sort of slip into the soporific slumber of the summer or the winter in your case. Um, and, um, and essentially, um, try and lock in some profits where you think you've had good runs and then line up a whole bunch of stuff that you structurally like the look of, um, that you hopefully will be able to buy cheap in your risk-off move. 
Okay, last last question I've got um, is on gold. So my you know my hypothesis is that gold's not an inflation trade. It's not a deflation trade. Gold is purely a loss of faith trade. So yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's that's kind of you know how I look at it because. If I go back and I look at inflation, it, it doesn't correlate. It just doesn't. I mean, I, 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 it baffles me every time these, these guys come out saying it's inflation. And Lube, it's gold. I started trading gold in the mid-80s and, uh, for, for Salomon, and uh, I've never seen quite so many people seem to want to throw themselves onto a spear over a lump <laughs> of fucking metal. Um, yeah. I never quite understood it. Um, if you look at something like silver, which is not quite the same as gold, the low on silver in 2001 was the high on the dollar and the high on silver uh, in 2011 was the low on the dollar. And it was a classic bubble. It's burst. I don't mind owning silver, you know, if I can get it in the mid to low 15s. Um, yeah. I don't mind owning some gold, but... Uh, you know, here's the thing. It's a great, theoretically, it's a great hedge if if you have um, unhedged inflation. So if the central banks do nothing and inflation is allowed to rip. I just, given where which, bond which prices is, which, are. Which is, which is just back to uh, having a complete loss of faith in currency. Yeah. So like, I mean, I, I had some on the ground um, fun and experiences in Zimbabwe when the place blew up. Right. And, and um, cause I've come from South Africa. That was where right. I was originally from. And so I went back there and I got involved with a bunch of buddies, mining engineers, and we went in to try and pick up some assets. Right. right? Cause we, you see things blowing up and you go, okay, well let's go take a look. Right. Yeah. And um, anyways, we went in and we were looking cause they were mining engineers. We were looking at um, gold mining assets um, because most of the, Anything that had infrastructure, whether it was mines, farms, uh, tobacco farms, it, corn, it didn't matter. Anything of that nature was at risk, especially yep. if it was owned by anybody with a white face, which was yep. pretty much what it had been. Yeah, yeah. And so what a lot of these guys did was they decided, okay, we're going to just, you know, we can either let the, the hordes come and take it, right, or we can fight them and I'll probably chop our heads off and that happened a bunch, or they just walked away from it. Um, and the way that they walked away from it was that they knew if they walked away, it was going to get taken by the people that they very much um, had a dislike for. So yep. what they would do was they would give it to their the farm manager or their head of mining operations. Right, 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 right. Somebody, somebody with a black face and they would put it through legal titles so that when, when the hordes came, they could say, look, it's not owned by whoever it was. And the guy's already on a plane and he's sitting in London, you know, investing yes. his so that happened a lot. But then you had the setup where the guys that now own these assets, look, and, and you were talking about assets, Julian, which were yep, yep. previously, maybe two, three years prior, were worth $50, $100 million. Right. And they were sitting on these things going, woohoo, happy days, I'm rich, but, but there's no liquidity. Right? Right. And, and there's no bid. Well, we, we thought that there'd be no bid. Anyway, so we went in and, and they just wanted to sell. And we were like, no, 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 we don't want to own this stuff. We have no interest in owning it. Um, right. we, we, we got what we call tributes and you go in and it's, it's just a, um, to, um, it's basically a revenue share on production. We were just interested in the production that came out. 
um, and being able to put in some resources and capital into ensuring that we can get production, keeping ownership in the name of um, those that can protect it. Anyways, it was interesting watching that whole process because you had this the currency which was collapsing and people were, were looking for a store of, of value and a store of wealth and gold was not gold. Look, gold went up with everything else, but it, yeah. it, it wasn't that necessarily it went up. It was just that the currency collapsed. And interestingly, probably, and I wrote an article about this a couple of um, months back, one of the, the major currency that turned that in that little short time frame, you know what the major currency was? Old mutual yeah. stock. Old oh, mutual really? stock because it listed on the LSE and it listed on the JSE and on the RRE stock exchange. So you could get true pricing immediately and know the value of what you were purchasing. So you had a store of value, you had liquidity, and people were tr- using old mutual stock to go and buy stuff and you could you could buy yourself a nice dinner in a Rari at a restaurant right. with old stock. <laughs> so it kind of comes back to this um, inflation trade thing. You know, you you're looking for something. It it yes, you want a store of value, um, but there's many things that can deliver it to you. Gold is one of them. And in that space, um, you know, where you have a complete loss of faith in, in any currency and bond market and so on and so forth. It makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, but what was interesting, because I never thought about it like that before, what was interesting to me that was that more important possibly than, because look, gold is difficult for people to move around. Yeah. Um, and, and something that just had listing on exchanges elsewhere in the world where they could get a true pricing and a true value was the preferred um, vehicle of choice, old mutual Your stock. stocks. I mean, I, look, I, you know, one of my clients used to be Jim Lightning before he sort of retired and he made a fortune in Zimbabwe, you know, despite the currency, right? Cause they just owned the right stocks and, you know, stocks went up and they restore a value and you can't, you know, that's why I think it's just ludicrous that somehow the fed thinks that they're somehow going to be able to walk away from this balance sheet. When, if you look at the broad, value of the US equity market it's followed the fucking balance sheet tick for tick but there you go there you go appreciate your time mate pleasure and um, let's do it again sometime yeah all the best talk to you soon take care cheers bye bye thanks very much for tuning in to receive more great subscriber only information go to capitalistexploits.at